This is the Bushwick Variety Show, and I'm Alex Stevens III. Greetings, neighbors, friends, citizens of the world, and conscious beings of all various types. Thank you so much for listening to the Bushwick Variety Show. Welcome to Season 3. I am thrilled to share today's episode with you because it features a conversation curated by the Public Theater with the director of the Richard II radio play, Sahim Ali, and a leading Shakespearean scholar who has sometimes been referred to as the Othello Whisperer, Ayanna Thompson. My goal for the Bushwick Variety Show podcast is to elevate voices and ideas and hopefully connect artists and collaborators with new audiences. This is something that I think all art seeks to do, and theater and the theatrical arts are one of the best ways to do this. This is something that the public theater has been doing since the beginning. If you aren't part of the New York theater community, or if you aren't from New York or aren't in the theater world at all, you might not know the public, but you probably know Broadway. And even if you don't know Broadway that well, you've probably heard of Hamilton. Hamilton was developed at the public, but Lin-Manuel Miranda's first Broadway musical was in the Heights. I moved to New York the year In the Heights debuted on Broadway and saw one of my favorite shows of all time, Passing Strange. Passing Strange was also developed at the public. The 70s musical Hair, which had a Broadway revival around the time I came to New York, was also a public theater developed piece. And Hair is the show that I got my actor's equity card from at the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle many moons ago. I say all of this to impart just how important this institution is to the American theater, to inclusivity and accessibility in the theater, and how important it is to me personally. We do not live in a vacuum. None of us. If this pandemic has taught me anything, it has affirmed so clear just how much we need each other. None of us can do anything without support from one another. We are all in this together. So thank you, Emily White, Reynaldi Lalong, and Fern Masterson for inviting me to collaborate on this episode. I am full of gratitude and honored to be able to participate and contribute. I couldn't think of a better way to kick off season three. So before we get into this, let me just say, I never wanted to do interviews over Zoom. I also know that many of you listening to this didn't think that you could do your work remotely as well. One of my favorite acting teachers, Jen Waldman, who you will hear from this season, didn't want to ever take her Midtown studio virtual. Then COVID happened, and all of us were forced to adjust things in our lives and face change. Change can be painful, and sometimes there is loss. But with change, there is also a great opportunity. Jen Waldman Studios is now online, and it's more accessible than ever. The National Black Theater has been facilitating conversations and artwork all through this. My home theater company, The Shelter Theater Company, has found ways to nurture and support our community in new innovative ways. And when Sahim Ali was approached in December to direct the public theater's summer 2020 production of Richard II, it was going to be part of the 60-year tradition of Shakespeare in the Park, started by visionary director Joe Papp. The way to honor the tradition of making Shakespeare and theater accessible to as many people as possible while staying safe through the pandemic was to conceive Richard II as a radio play in collaboration with WNYC and an all-star cast of actors with Andre Holland in the title role. Links to the radio play as well as 
the link to the Public Square episode of this conversation, are in the show notes. You can also find and listen to the play through the podcast app by searching for Richard II. So, this is my conversation with director Sahim Ali and Shakespearean scholar and Othello whisperer Ayana Thompson. And we are talking about WNYC and the public theater's free Shakespeare on the radio production of Richard II. Let's have a conversation. Cool. Um, so just to introduce myself really quick, I'm Alec III. Um, I'm sort of a multi-hyphenate. Um, and during this COVID time, for me, it's been a real moment to reflect. And I really feel like I've um, gained a lot of clarity of purpose. Um, one of the questions that I find myself asking is, uh, being a black man in the arts, being part of the BIPOC community, anything I engage in is somewhat gonna deal with issues of being a BIPOC artist. Um, but I think in past times, uh, the theater has put like BIPOC faces on stage um, and hasn't actually you know, it's been a progress thing. They've been colorblind casting and stuff like that was a big move. But now we're kind of on to the next thing. And in this time, we're interrogating, I think all of us, the whole country's taking a look within kind of what's next um, and what responsibility do we have? Um, I kick all that off just to say, how are you doing? Ayana Thompson, Sahim Ali, how are you doing um, in this moment right now today? Today is a good day. <laughs> you know, it, there's the ups and downs and, and it's real. Um, I, as a BIPOC scholar, feel like I am more in demand now than I've ever been before. Every organization I'm affiliated with, whether it's a professional organization or an arts organization or my own academic institution, suddenly is like, oh, Black Lives Matter you might be able to help us with this. <laughs> so I am also incredibly tired um, and the kind of fatigue of the work is real, is real. But it does mean that there's the potential for change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's been, it, it has been trying. Um, it's been, uh, you know, as a freelance artist, I'm a freelance director, so I, I work when I'm hired to work. Um, and since no one is doing any hiring for live theater right now, it's been a, a time of great, um, a great clearing. Um, and uh, Richard II shifted from being a production in the Delacorte to being a production on the radio. And so that for me was, you know, at first, my heart sank a little bit because it's just, you know, it's just a radio play as opposed to like a full blown production in Central Park with thousands of people. But then the more I went into it, the more I just really appreciated the fact that I could engage with a piece of art right now and with a community of artists and telling a story. So it, 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 is, it has been a very, very uplifting kind of a rejuvenating moment for me. Nice. Um, and yeah, I'm, everybody in New York is mourning the loss of live theater right now, as is the entire country's mourning the loss of live events in general. Uh, I think it's really exciting when I heard about this radio play concept, because I think this time forces everybody to be innovative. So 
in order to keep with the public's mission of making theater accessible and specifically Shakespeare accessible to a lot of different people, somebody I was talking to was asking kind of like, wouldn't there have been a way to still do it in the park? But I think, of course, that would have meant social distancing. So it would have meant limiting the amount of people that could actually see it. So in this way, um, it, it actually can get out to even more people um, than ever before. So how do you um, kind of get in, like what, what's the approach to putting on Richard II as a radio play? Yeah, for me, it involved really reimagining the whole piece. Um, because when you have live theater, there are elements of storytelling that are visible, uh, that are not spoken. And so you have costumes, you have scenery, you have props, you have all these um, components of storytelling that are um, just that are part of the tapestry of what the world is that you're creating. So in thinking about audio and all of everything visual stripped away, anything that can tell you a story in that sense, like missing, um, my, I did a deep dive into completely just like rethinking the play just based on what is audible um, and what components that are audible are telling a story. So kind of really breaking it down to, starting with the text, of course, the, the actors speaking. So how are they speaking? What is their cadence? What do they sound like when they're speaking Shakespeare? Being like, you know, the crucial component. And then on top of that, um, what does the environment sound like that they're in? Um, is it abstract? Is it realistic? What is the music that, that can be heard? Is that realistic in the space? Is it emotional? Is it uh, conceptual? So really, um, I reconceived the whole production for just audio being the storyteller alongside the text, um, which, was a, which was something that I've never done before. I've never worked on a radio play. I never even listened to a Shakespeare radio play before this. I kind of, you know, went looking uh, on YouTube and the only thing I could find were like, you know, British plays from like the whole, you know, from the from the 60s to, to the 90s, because they have a deep, deep tradition in the UK of continuing radio drama and Shakespeare drama. And in the US, the, the most contemporary piece I could find was an Orson Welles recording of Julius Caesar from the 1930s. I mean, Ayanna, I'm not sure if there are any that are more contemporary than that, but I was, certainly wasn't able to find them. No, I think you're absolutely right. And um, we, we don't have the same kind of rich um, radio play tradition around Shakespeare in the US. Um, and what's exciting for me for your production is, of course, the public has been at the forefront of thinking about non-traditional casting and what it, looks, what it looks like to have different bodies embody Shakespeare. But I think this could be at the forefront of what does it sound like mm -hmm. when you have different bodies performing Shakespeare and the centrality of the voice and taking it out of the visual realm for us when thinking about race in Shakespeare, I think is incredibly important and also shifts the dialogues that we can have. So I'm just really grateful to you for doing this. <laughs> No, it's been it's been a real it's been a real journey when you actually think about and, and a real pleasure to think about um you know because yeah race is visible is it also audible you know can you tell the race of the person when they're simply speaking uh, what does that mean and I and for me uh, my approach to that was really to encourage the actors to speak as they do I said this is contemporary so speak as you were contemporaneous and then and, and so they do and so what you hear are these actors speaking the way they speak and and i said you know this is not british we're not setting it in the uk um i don't want any kind of like put on um you know cadence which which just is always even in live theater is just like grating for me whenever i hear that you know the way you treat shakespeare like it's 
like you know it's on a pedestal um um and so yeah i'm really excited just to just to get a sense of how people are going to respond to that and what they'll take from it i think that that's a interesting um thing to talk about the idea i touched about it a little bit in the intro but about colorblind casting um part of the problem and i couldn't put my finger on it when i would see things and I think it's because we have to have representation in all aspects of theater, not just putting people on stage. But I'd see productions where basically it was like you have BIPOC people playing maybe white people sometimes. Or, or um, also I've seen where sometimes they're playing quote unquote and a caricature of what a black person is. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of interested in where you guys think we go from here. Cause as far as to create more equity within the theater, more representation. And I think it's a big thing about that is black people don't speak one way. Um, just as white people don't speak one no way. One does. Yeah. No one does. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think, you know, one of the beautiful things about this moment is that our language is evolving, right? So two months ago, I never said BIPOC, you know, right. I said people of color, I said black people. And now this like beautiful umbrella that like kind of, you know, leads with black and indigenous before people of color, I, that, that like, you know, um, uh, uh, honors the differences, but saying that we're coming together, like the that there is a collective, you know, that, that's language that's new. Um, colorblind casting was something that's like, even that is a relic right now. We don't talk about that anymore because once upon a time it was like, oh, I don't see color. I don't see race. Mm -hmm. I'm just blind to it. Simply not true. So now we talk about color conscious casting. And I think, Ayana, I, I, I read somewhere you, there's another phrase to describe it. Well, I mean, I prefer color conscious casting, but some people yeah. are talking about new traditional. Yes, um, that was yeah. it. Yeah, um, and which I think is fine, right? Because it's a kind of bigger umbrella. Um, but I think you're right, Sahim, that the important thing to hit on is that when colorblind casting was first conceived, and it was to integrate the theaters in New York, which were still segregated by law. And so it was very revolutionary, but to get that accepted was the like, oh, we don't see race, you don't have to see it. And I think we're at a place now in the 21st century where if someone says to me they don't see my race, I'm insulted. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so I think we're we're just in a different place now where our thinking about um, what race means, what it matters, how it matters, how it impacts structures that we're in are all things that are now up for debate, dialogue, uh, contestation, and change. And I think that performance is, is very central to this because oftentimes, at least in a live event, and I think it will also happen for the radio event, you're in a space where something shifts and changes. And you can have a conversation with a stranger in the bathroom stall about what she is experiencing on stage or what she thinks about the racial, racial makeup of the cast or how it matters to her or doesn't or whatever. And I think that uh, a radio play, at least in our family, in our homes, we can have those dialogues with our children and perhaps with our neighbors if they're sitting outside listening to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people, uh, myself included before this, uh, 
I'm pretty familiar with a lot of Shakespearean plays. I've read a lot of them. I've not read all of them. So uh, I was familiar with Richard III, which I think a lot of people are. That's the Richard a lot of people know. And Richard III is definitely the villain of the story. He's also the central character of that story. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Richard II. Um, I think you could, he could be considered the villain. Um, he's a very self-destructive character, but yeah, let's, let's talk about Richard II and why that story or how that story might relate to some things happening right now. I think Richard II is a great play cause it's tricky mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not, I mean, as you say, like Richard III is, is pretty straightforward. Like he tells you he's a bad guy and then he is a bad guy and then he continues to be a bad guy. Like that's kind of straightforward. Richard II has this strange structure where your emotional relationship to Richard at the beginning of the play changes dramatically to the end and the same with your relationship to Bolingbroke. So we refer to it a lot of times in highfalutin terms as a chiastic structure, which just means an X across chi. Uh-huh. And that, you know, at the beginning, you're kind of ambivalent about Richard and you, you know, kind of become more sympathetic towards him as the play moves on. And the opposite happens for, for Bolingbroke as, and who becomes Henry IV, that you feel kind of on his side at the beginning. And then by the end, you're like, wait, was this a good thing? So I think that, that that's one of my favorite parts about this play is that it allows the audience to have different emotional responses and that there isn't a clear good guy or a bad guy. Um, but Sahim, I'd love to hear your thoughts about why this was the play you chose. Well, the play chose me um, <laughs> because before December 2019, I didn't know the play at all. Um, Oscar and I had been talking about me doing something at the Delacorte this summer and we tossed a couple of titles around that he said, well, what do you think about Richard II? And I said, well, let me read it. So I read it um, and I was just completely blown away by how kind of beautifully complex and ambiguous it is. That's one of the things for me, there's such an ambiguity in the play. There's only one soliloquy, well, there's like one and a half. Richard has a soliloquy at like third to last scene of the play. Salisbury has a tiny one, but like, so you don't get um, a sense of the inner workings of any of the characters at all. And so you're left with just their actions. They act, they do certain things and you go, well, why did he do that in this moment? Like, what was he thinking in this moment? And so there's a lot of that in this play, which I think then lends itself to just, um, you know, the answers aren't given to you. And so you have to you have to create them. And even in the creation of that, it's still so nuanced that you can't really play the thing in the moment. Um, so I think that kind of ambiguity makes it one of the lesser done plays. Um, it's also one that drops you into a sociopolitical context, like really fast. And then you have to understand the stakes of what's happening and they're not explained to you. You don't, no one tells you that Richard potentially ordered the hit on Gloucester. No one tells you that Gloucester, you know, it's like there are all these, uh, circumstances that you have to come in kind of knowing. And I think if you've studied Shakespeare, if you love Shakespeare, if for some reason you've seen it, that you understand that, but it's not Romeo and Juliet where the chorus comes out and tells you, so this is the situation. There's this family, there's that family, there's Starcross lovers, they're gonna die, go. Um, you know, it doesn't have that kind of like a, like a synthesizing of the context. So um, my job then at the Delacorte was to think of how I could help tell that story. And then, so, you know, for, for my production there, I was going to have a funeral at the beginning with a casket of Gloucester out there and a procession. And so when they're talking about him, like the body is there, when the Duchess grieves for him, the body is there, just 
to help an audience understand. So then it became, okay, how am I going to do that on the radio in a way that then an audience is going to understand this play and follow along? Um, and, and the secrets of radio or like the tricks of radio are that you can have a narrator. You can have someone who comes in and like gives you a little footnote, gives you a little bit of information. You can't do that in the theater. And so that was a really exciting discovery for me that, that you know, that is like a component that can really help an audience understand this play for the first time. And then next time when they're going to see it, they're going to know what's going on. So I'm really hoping this could like, you know, get some Richard II lovers out of a whole lot of people as a result. I will say that my students end up at the, like, you know, if we cover this over two weeks or whatever, the first half of the first week, they hate it. Like, and they hate rich <laughs> and they hate Richard. They're like, he's so boring and he seems to be corrupt, but I'm not quite sure. You know, just kind of, and then by the end, they love this play and they love it. I think precisely for the ambiguity that you talked about Sahim and also because the play is about politics. It is a, and that's why you don't get the inner workings, right? Because mm -hmm, what you mm -hmm. get is like what is presented as your public facing version of yourself, which we know is never related to the inner person. So right, I right, think there's right. that, that strange distancing that, that lures people in once they get it. And so I think, you know, it is a play that is a slow burn and then is incredibly rewarding at the end. And has like COVID. Black Lives Matter, everything going on right now, has that informed this production? Yes. Um, George Floyd was killed the week before we started rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And so I knew there was no way we were just gonna start rehearsing a play without dealing with that. Um, I myself was, was very conflicted about whether or not I wanted to do the play as a result. Um, you know, it was a real kind of existential crisis of like, what am I doing? Should I be doing theater? Is this helping anyone? How, you know, what does this dead old white guy have to say about this moment, you know? And the, the, the casting of the play had happened even, even prior. Like I knew Andre Holland was gonna be playing Richard. So I knew there was gonna be a black king. And so then I had to make decisions about what the rest of the world was going to be based on that. And, you know, one of my own philosophies is I always center BIPOC artists and BIPOC stories in what I do. Um, it's not about the universe as a whole, but it is about the center. The center is important. What, 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 what surrounds it can be something else, but like the center is always crucial to me. Um, and so knowing that there was a black king, um, the decision of what's Bolingbrook going to be. For me, Bolingbrook had to be black as well. And, I, and like, you know, the sweet spot for me would have been a black woman because that's who I wanted to take the throne from a black king, you know? Um, and so everything else kind of grew from that. And so the cast that we have for the radio play is primarily BIPOC artists because that was the production that I was conceiving for the Delacorte even. But um, in, in being in isolation and then having George Floyd's death happen and having Black Lives Matter really kind of being thrust into um, the limelight in a way that it hadn't been for the past few years, um, enabled us to have conversations about blackness in theater, about blackness in Shakespeare, about what it means to have a black body and a black voice in a role that wasn't written for it. Should we be doing it? Why do we continue to engage in it? All these questions became part of our initial kind of gathering as a collective of 26, 27 artists on Zoom, you know, everyone in their own home trying to like converse in this way um, in a really beautiful way. And so out of that came 
um, a desire from the artist that every episode be dedicated to the Black Lives Matter movement, which came from the artist saying like, if I'm going to engage in this work, I want it to be meaningful in this way. And so the two institutions, the public and WNYC had to contend with that because, you know, it's radio and so it's, they're journalists. So can they say that? Should they say that? That all became um, up for discussion in a way that I think it might not have if we hadn't been in such a fraught kind of raw moment. Um, and then one of the things I'm really excited about in terms of the radio play is that the play itself will take up, there's going to be four episodes, um, an hour, hour long each, with about 30 to 40 minutes of the Shakespeare text within that. But around that will be conversations um, that uh, people like Ayana and Jim Shapiro are part of, but also the artists who are going to be talking about those difficult things that we talked about. And so um, they will actually be in dialogue with the play in a way that, again, we can only do on the radio. And that is only happening because of the moment that we're in. So the energy around the production, the, 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 the spirit the artists are bringing as BIPOC artists primarily is going to be part of the experience of this play in a real, much more than them lending their talents. They're going to be bringing their spirits and their identities as artists dealing with this play. So that, that, those are ways that I'm really excited about um, this moment that we're in being reflected in the play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can say as, as someone who's not involved in the production, but who listened to some of the raw footage, um, for me, uh, thinking through the play's understanding about what it means to have structural change, right? What it means to take a king out and replace him with another king is precisely some of the conversations that we're having now, if you're talking about defunding the police or just systemic change. And I think the play allows us to think about the way we have to mourn some of the things that we need to get rid of. Mm. So even if there are things that we know that we have to get rid of, there is still grief and mourning that occurs around it. And there is also that residual pain that we will feel when you've gotten rid of some system to replace it with what you hope is better. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, it, I thought the Black Lives Matter moment cracked this play open in a whole different way. And I think it did have to do with hearing those Black voices um, uh, directed beautifully in their own voices say these words. And so I, I got to... Ex I got to think through grief in a, a whole different way. So I do think it's a surprise that it works so well in this moment, I think. I, I don't know that I could have predicted this in advance that it would work, but it did for me profoundly. Um, a question I've been engaging with myself and a lot of communities is, and this is like for everybody I think right now, but as BIPOC artists in general, it's, do we have a responsibility to address social and racial issues with our art? Um, I think like the simple answer is yes. I also think as BIPOC artists, we don't really have the luxury not to engage. Like it will engage with you at some point, it'll catch up with you. Um, but then the thing that I'm kind of questioning for myself, and I wonder what your thoughts on this is sort of, like, how do you deal with, am I doing enough? Am I saying enough? And I think it might just be a question that I have to keep asking. If I want structural change in the world, then I have to make sure I'm engaging my own art and craft. So how are you, and I know it's exhausting um, 
we didn't ask for it to be this way, but this is what it is. Um, and we're in a moment, I think, when we can shift a lot of things. Like, we're in a very special moment right now. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Um, Sahim Ayana, Sahim? Uh, oh, he's gesturing to yep. me, although this yeah, is yeah. oral. So. <laughs> so, uh, so I will say that as a Black woman who has spent her life dealing with Shakespeare and classical theater, that of course, these are questions that I, I have had to ask myself every day of my career. Mm-hmm. And the, re- the way that I have answered it for myself, um, having grown up in a very kind of politically active household, was that I need to be able to change this one system. I need to be able to change the way that we teach Shakespeare, the way we perform Shakespeare, the way we experience Shakespeare, the way we talk about Shakespeare. And that that's like one of the dials that I can turn. If this is the most performed playwright in the world, the most performed playwright in the world, you can get at a whole lot of change through that. Um, so I, I don't necessarily come to working on Shakespeare as someone, I, 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 like the, I like the plays, I love the plays, I love the language, but that wasn't what brought me to it. What brought me to it was to use Shakespeare as a tool to make some of these other changes that, that are BIPOC-centered. So that's how I've answered it for myself, but it's not easy on any given day. <laughs> like, and there are moments when I'm like, shouldn't I have just specialized in Toni Morrison or Amiri Baraka or whatever, you know, like, shouldn't I just be talking about Dutchman over and over and over again? (laughs) Yeah, I, I, as I shared, I definitely very, very specifically grappled with this very question. And in fact, before that first rehearsal that I described where, which I, you know, I opened it up and we kind of did it, um, you know, Quaker style where everyone just got to speak their truth. And it wasn't about like, you know, dialogue. It was just about a sharing and then silence and sharing where everyone got to speak. And even before that, I called four of the, the black uh, actors and said, hey, just checking in. Like, I know we said yes to this, but like, is this still something you want to do? Like, do you feel like in light of the world that we're in, it still is worthy and valuable for you to be engaging in this work? And they all said variations of the exact same thing, which was, yes, absolutely. I love Shakespeare. I want to engage with Shakespeare. That, that, you know, that I, I need to engage with Shakespeare right now. Um, and in that, and in the process of doing it, because I myself had just asked, you know, like, wow, what are we doing? Should we be doing this? And all of those things. Um, and I think that for me, it was a real kind of affirmation that, that like, I, my power lies in creating these kinds of rooms where we can have this kind of a dialogue and we can engage with this art and ask the tough questions and really look inward. And like, you know, the Shakespeare is a conduit for that. It's not the end result. Like the doing it like unpacks the thing and the doing it like, you know, excavates the emotion and like talks about like our worth on this planet. But like, um, that's actually, that's actually that the goal is much bigger than the thing that it's just a way to get there. And so, I just came out on the other side, just being kind of like, you know, um, valuing just a bit deeper, like my place in this little microcosm. Like we, we were only like 30 or 40 people, but it's 30 or 40 people who are like gathering and predominantly BIPOC people who are, um, who understand that 
their voices and their presence right now is even more essential than ever. And like we have, you know, the people are playing roles that they have not traditionally played. You know, Miriam Hyman is playing a role that, oh my God, like, you know, I don't know when else a black woman would have played Bolingbroke in a major theater institution in this country, you know? So I just think that there are ways to create change in our part of the universe that, um, that with our God-given talents, you know, and that's something. And I think this is particularly why it's important to have BIPOC directors. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that the same kind of dialogues could have happened without Sahim at the helm of this. And, and, and this is part of the structural change that we all have to be a part of is saying like, we need more BIPOC voices guiding these productions. And, and I think that's particularly important. And of course, our, our white allies are, are key in, you know, opening the door and holding it open and, and lifting us and being there to amplify what we're doing. Um, but we really have to call for more people like Sahim to, to be at the helm of these major productions. Yes. Um, and I think the public, as he said, was on the forefront of kind of making that happen um, historically um, and currently. So I think right now when this moment happened, it's been really nice to see the theaters that were already doing that work. So it wasn't all of a sudden a pivot and just a generic statement of like Black Lives Matter. It's like actually that statement meaning something and being put into work. Uh, I wanted to know if either of you had like a favorite quote from the play. Um, And I can share one too that really has me thinking and it's towards the beginning and I think it speaks to this moment and it's Richard II says to Bolingbroke and uh, what was the other guy's name? Uh, the, the two guys at the beginning, Bolingbroke Mowbray. and... Mowbray. Mowbray. Yes. Um, yeah. And this is kind of where everything sets off. But he says to them, forget, forgive, conclude, and be agreed. Our doctors say this is no time to bleed. And Richard II has been, when I was looking it up, it's been described as like a tragedy sometimes. It's been described as a history. It's a history play also. But I was wondering why sometimes it's a tragedy or it's always kind of described as history or tragedy. And to me, I think the tragedy of it is, and what can be the tragedy of history is that history repeats. And what Richard does there is kind of just try to sweep some things under the rug because it's inconvenient. And right now we're seeing the whole country erupt after like this pandemic nobody saw coming and then George Floyd and just a powder keg went off. So with that, depending on what we do, this can be a tragedy if we don't take advantage of this time. So specifically as theater artists, what are your hopes like kind of for the future? yeah. Like, what can we do different? What do you want to see different? And I'm very grateful to be and acknowledge I'm grateful to be in New York, where I feel like a lot of the movement is here, you know? Yeah, and we are, you know, um, we have the We See You movement right now, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with, yeah, the doctrine and the, the demands have come out right now. And it's a very, very powerful kind of manifestation of um, 
all the calls for systemic change and like in our predominantly white institutions, you know? And I think it's a moment now where we can do that in a way that we haven't been able to before. And there are no distractions, there are no productions to put up because nothing is happening, virtually nothing is happening. And so um, it, it, the excitement of the possibility of like some deep, meaningful, significant change, I think is where we're at right now. And so I'm just, I'm just excited to see how, and, and there has been a response already. So I'm, I'm excited to see how that's going to keep growing. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a it's a hard moment and a good moment. Um, and I think uh, you're right, Alec, that New York is 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 pushing it harder than any other um, art center right now. I would say London right now looks uh, light years behind in their rhetoric around um, BIPOC art, BIPOC artists, <laughs> and I, I think they're, they'll, they'll feel this push from New York. It'll emanate out from here. Uh, so I am hopeful, uh, but it, it, I, I'm also worried that um, energy that gets expended only on the pandemic will be at the cost of the Black Lives Matter and anti-Black racism issues. But they're of course related. They are the same, like the pandemic and and our systemic racism are right. in, inherently Absolutely. related. So I just hope that we can seize on that and make sure that our white allies understand that they're not unrelated issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, why? when we want more representation this is kind of a tougher one why when we want to tell our stories and be represented why is shakespeare still important and you touched on it a little bit iana so maybe you start on this one because you didn't choose necessarily to come to shakespeare so yeah why well i mean i, I think in the theater world there are some centers that are still holding. And when I say theater world, I mean world, right? So if we're talking about South Africa or India or a lot of the, you know, kind of post-colonial outposts, outposts or even ones that weren't touched necessarily by British imperialism, Shakespeare is still the thing that is performed the most. So if you're a working actor, regardless of your background, you're gonna have to be able to perform Shakespeare unless you're just doing television ads, right? Like, I mean, which no, no one just narrows their, their acting to that, to that realm. So in some ways that, that kind of gravitational force of Shakespeare makes it so that we're going to have to engage through Shakespeare for these other issues. Um, now, if the world were a completely different place, if we had, you know, 400 years of different history, Shakespeare might not be the, the center of that gravitational force, but that is the way it exists right now. 400 years from now, maybe August Wilson will be our gravitational pull. Mm -hmm. I, had a, I had a graduate student uh, uh, many years ago write a play where it was like a post-apocalypse and the only texts that survived were August Wilson plays. Mm. <laughs> so like, you know, you could think about like, you know, what happens in 400 years. But right now we have to get, I think if you're a working artist, you're gonna to have to work through these plays in some, in some ways if you want to work. Mm -hmm. Sahim, do, do, do you think, is that just a, an accurate description? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Because it's about, you know, 
it's about language, right? Like we are all speaking English, like we speak English, which came from Britain, right? That, that is our own way of communicating, like regardless of, of um, what our races might be uh, because of the world that we're in. And Shakespeare for me is like the epitome of the language that we speak. Like he was like a wordsmith, like there hasn't been one in terms of just like expression of human emotion. And so the reason why I think that Shakespeare is so universally performed and taught and um, it kind of transcends language too is because the, what he expresses like is true uh, just on a human level. The, the, the things that these characters want and need and desire and pine for are our humanity. That's what connects us regardless of what we look like. And so those, the, what he's tapped into transcends not only language, but transcends race, transcends um, uh, all these other forms, of it, which is why you can, you can cast across gender. You can cast, you can cast across so many lines that divide us, you know? And so I think one of the, 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 but the, the problems can be that because of the, the language is more elevated as it were, like there's this conception of like, Oh, it's not for me. Like I'm not smart enough. I'm not white enough. I'm not educated enough. There are all these kind of barriers. And part of my mission is like in whatever way possible is to dismantle those barriers. So that people who like don't, haven't been to, haven't had got to study him in school, haven't gotten to see a play before can still enjoy 12th night, can still enjoy Romeo and Juliet, can still enjoy Richard II because once you get over that, like, whatever the obstacle is, there is such joy uh, on the other side. There's catharsis, there's empathy, there, is, there are all the glorious things that theater can do. Um, and so I think that um, it's just, it, it, and, and, and for me, part of the joys of working with actors, you get to, like, translate. It's almost like it's in a different language. And you're like, well, what is he actually saying here? You know, like, what does he mean with this word? What is, what is this word, like, actually tr trying to express? And that's, like there's no barrier to that you know there isn't and so i think that 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 kind of decolonizing and de like tethering shakespeare to this like white british identity um is is um i think it's important enough for me to be like i want to engage with this and i feel like that is like something worthy of um of of of, of, of engagement just because like ayana was saying yeah like to be an actor you're gonna have to anyway because this is like one of the like it, it is one of the best, it's it, it's just, it is a, um, it is a glorious way of experiencing art. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned every episode is going to, how long are each episode going to be? So it's four hours long. It's next week, the 13th through the 16th, Monday through Thursday at 8 p.m. So it's an hour long each night. And within that, you will get these conversations with the artists, with um, folks like Ayana and Jim, um, and uh, then you'll get the play within there. So you'll get some context to the episode um, to give you a sense of like what's, what's, what, are you, what you're about to hear. And then afterwards, there'll be a kind of like a digestion of like, well, this is what you just heard. This is why it's important. So um, it's, it's, it's a real kind of contextualization that helps you understand the play. Nice. Um, so from my understanding is that the dialect when Shakespeare, and I don't know if this is, I don't know if you know this, Ayanna, but like that the dialect that they spoke when like Shakespeare was writing those plays, somebody told me this, um, is that it's close, closer to American English now than it actually is to British English now. 
Um, I don't know if you know if that's true or not, but I've heard that because dialects evolve over time. Yeah, I, I would say it's not exactly true, but what is true and um, I think picks up in the production um, is that African-Americans who go to certain churches use the King James Bible. Uh -huh. And the King James Bible was written at the same time that Shakespeare was writing. And it's a similar kind of verse and pattern and structure. So people who've gone to Black Pentecostal churches are very, very comfortable with Shakespeare's English because they have studied and chanted and said bits from the King James Bible. So there is that kind of, and, and I certainly picked up on this in the production because I was like, ah, oh, you can hear, I was like, I know which people went to black churches. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I think it's, it's not exactly the same as saying that American English is, is closer to Shakespearean English. And I don't think that's true. We're all 400 years away from Shakespeare's English. It's a, it's a lot of change. Mm -hmm. um, but there are certainly, if you grow up reading some texts, the Shakespearean um, patterns and rhythms will feel very familiar. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, and speaking of the church and the King's James, I know a lot of directors have used music in Shakespeare, and I'm wondering if there's any uh, musical element in, in this radio production. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of music. Um, it was important for me to find something that felt contemporary, but also had a sense of legacy and history because the play does, um, you know, we have monarchies that exist today. And so um, I wanted a sense of uh, uh, like a contemporary feel to the structure and to the way that music works. You know, um, so I'm, I, my approach was, was somewhat cinematic because we have a sense of like, you know, how sounds and how like surreal environments work when we see movies. And so I was really kind of reaching for that because I wanted it to feel like it was made in 2020. I wanted to feel like, it, you know, even though the language is archaic, the way it's spoken doesn't have to be and the sounds that are that around it don't have to be either. Um, and so the uh, Michael Thurber is the name of the composer. Um, He's created um, original music for it that, um, like I said, feels like it was composed today because it was, but then still, you know, in the place talking about legacy and, and structures that have existed and inheritance, like inheritance of, of possession, but also inheritance of a legacy and, and, and a structure itself too. So um, there will definitely be music. And again, music that feels like, is it, is it like actual in the room or is it like psychological? And when is it, when, you know, the interplay between that, which I just as a listener, I'd be fast, I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, when it's, um, uh, when it's one or when it's the other. So yes, lots of music. Uh, Ayana, you did a movie called uh, H4. And for people, you check out this radio play if you wanna know kind of what happens after this, um, H4 is a good, good jumping off point. It literally takes place after Richard II. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what you're excited about to work on after this, what you're working on right now? I mean, I know we're kind of all in a pause, but yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just say briefly about H4 that Harry Lennox, the brilliant actor, uh, came to me and he's like, I want to do, do a film version of 
uh, the Henry the Fourth plays, and I was like, "Are you sure? <laughs> like, do you want to do one that's taught more often?" <laughs> it's probably like the same questions Sahim had about Richard the Second. Of, yeah. But he he was adamant. He's like, "No, I want to do this, and I want it to you know sort of have a a kind of surreal but real feel to um, the history and map it onto potentially an African American history." So. It's set in LA and with different, um, different, the different factions fighting. And basically, if you, you know, as, as you say, Richard II ends with Henry IV assuming the throne and feeling quite guilty about it and thinking that he has to go off to the Holy Land to cleanse himself mm -hmm. of his guilt. And in, instead of being able to go on to the Holy Land, Henry IV begins with kind of internal struggles as a result of this potential insurrection usurpation of the throne so he never gets that moment of cleansing his soul and the henry the fourth plays are sort of cycling through that 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 level of of guilt and insecurity about his position and insecurity about his legacy for his son um, so that was incredibly fun you can you can uh, download it on amazon prime um, so that's a that's a fun thing i think i'm supposed to be doing another script for a film um, but in the midst of, of our uprising, um, I haven't heard more about that, uh, but I'll probably do that in the, in the coming year. And I just finished a book on blackface Ooh. and I was literally writing it as the uprising, as the killing occurred and then the uprisings occurred. And the book is really about how we get out of our amnesia with regards to American histories with performance with regards to performances of blackness in particular mm. and how we stop blackface and of course in the middle of writing this book literally every day someone else was like oh I'm sorry I was in blackface in 2005 I didn't know and they're like it wasn't 1885 girl no, that was no. 2005 <laughs> So, so there reason. was, yeah, sadly, there was too much material for the book. <laughs> but the publisher's going to try and get that out, um, I think, in this uh, calendar year. So, so that's what I've been working on. Nice. And where's the best place for people to keep up with what you're up to? Oh, yeah, they can visit my website, which is ayanathompson.com. And I have a lot of my kind of public engagement work there and um, ways to contact me. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sahim, technically, how was the process of rehearsing this play during the pandemic? Um, that just occurred to me. Were you over Zoom or did you meet? Like, how did you, how, how was that? Yeah, there was no meeting. Uh, everyone was in their own home. And so mm -hmm. we rehearsed on Zoom for a week. And then all the actors were responsible for recording themselves as well. So WNYC shipped them all like little like uh, kits, little microphones. Um, and then uh, we would rehearse like this on Zoom. And then uh, we would record the scenes here on Zoom. But they had their equipment that was actually recording their audio. And then they had to upload that audio into Dropbox after each session and then an engineer at WNYC would come like com construct everything based on that and so we didn't get to hear what had actually been recorded until like you know after the fact so it was a very um technically uh involved process and we had a huge cast 25 actors and everyone from an eight-year-old to a 92-year-old and everything in between mm -hmm. so um it was a real feat 
but um, uh, you know, I was very, I'm, I, I am of the mind that I don't want to make theater that's for Zoom. Um, this is just not for me something that I want to watch. So it's like, why would I make it then? Uh, there's just too much to compete with on the screens. Um, but like the, the 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 whole the whole process of like taking a Shakespeare play, rehearsing it on Zoom to be broadcast on the radio was just a very kind of retro but super super 2020 way of constructing the whole piece. And so um, we did it in the only way we can now, which is yeah, in isolation, connected this very way. And uh, yeah, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Um, one thing that I've heard is that a lot of places might, going forward, do table reads over Zoom, actually, um, in the future. I don't know if that's the case, um, but what are you, how are you doing now? Are you excited? Uh, what are you thinking about now that this is kind of finishing up? I know it's, you know might take a week, but what are you thinking of next for you? And I know that's with a caveat, we don't know what's yeah, going on yeah, there's, no, there's a whole lot of unknown. Um, yeah, the table read question. Um, that was the only component that I would say was as close to the actual process as could be because we were basically talking about the play and they would read the scene and I would respond and ask questions. And so, um, but that, that's where it began and end to being like an actual, maybe like we could be, we could do this, like when back in the real world. Um, but every other part of it was just like substitution for, you know, the real thing. Um, I am, I'm deep, deep in it. We're still editing. You know, I think we'll be finishing like each episode as it's about to air. Cause it's, it's a really involved, uh, process, which has been a lot of fun and a, and a great challenge. Um, I've been finding more radio plays coming my way. So, you know, maybe this may be the, the thing for the next five, six, seven, who knows how many months that we are in isolation. Um, so I'm, I'm excited though, because this was my first foray into it. And I have to say, like, I really enjoyed it. It's appreciated for just being able to engage in an artistic process right now. And um, yeah, it won't be the, it won't be people gathering at the Delacorte, but it will be the next best thing, which is actually still connecting people. Cause the thing that we love about the theater is people gather um, become a small community. They engage with a piece, and then they move out into the world. And they, for for that, for those two, 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 three hours, you know, have become like a small community. And um, I think we can't do that right now. And and the play can can be shared in the only way it can now. So there'll be people listening from their homes and like empathizing with Richard and like wondering why Bolingbroke's doing what he's doing. And so we'll be invisibly connected in a way. Um, and I'm really excited about that, just the power of theater to still kind of connect and for empathy to happen. You know, there's a couple of times when I was listening to um, um, Richard's uh, Act 5, Scene 5 speech in the prison, and I just, I literally turned off all the lights in my apartment and like went on my couch and closed my eyes. And like, it was extraordinary. That's like one of my favorite memories of this isolation was that moment when I did that, because I was somewhere, I was transported somewhere and I was connected with a person. Uh, I felt a little less lonely in my apartment where I'd been mm -hmm. for three months by myself without anyone. So um, I'm excited at the possibility of theater uh, connecting us in some way for these next few months until we can actually, you know, breathe the same air and hug each other and touch again. Can I ask a question? So I know it's gonna be live the four days on WNYC. Will mm -hmm. it also be available for streaming afterwards? It will be, it'll be available in podcast form and then I'm pushing for it to be available as like a YouTube link that just will be there in perpetuity because you know, those other plays exist and I want this to exist in that same way. 
I think mm -hmm. that's important to have it next to Orson Welles's, you know, Julius Caesar, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be lovely. Then someone doesn't have to go, yeah, back to the 1930s to find a radio player. <laughs> oh, and it looks like it'll also be on the public's website. Yes. As an ongoing thing. Uh, so that'll be part of that tradition of uh, Shakespearean radio plays. Uh, and where's the yeah, best? And the public's and the public, you know, the public does Shakespeare in so many different ways. You know, we have like the, the Delacorte in the summer. We have Public Works, the musicalized versions. We have the mobile unit, which goes to different communities. Uh, we have indoor Shakespeare too, which, you know, like the, the Oscar Isaac Hamlet, that's its own kind of thing. And I think like this could be a new tradition for the public, like, you know, a whole other way of, of, of enjoying and disseminating Shakespeare and making it just even more accessible because accessible is being able to get there and understand, but like, this can also, you know, transcend like a geographic place in a way that's really exciting. And it can also, it has the potential to transcend how we teach Shakespeare as well. Because that's a great point. Since I'm probably a lot older than both of you, I grew up being taught Shakespeare on a record. Like we oh. listened to records of Laurence Olivier in school. And wow. it's really great to for students now to hear Andre Holland. Andre Holland. Yes. Yeah, that would yes. be amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Sahim, where's the best place for people to follow you and what you're up to? Yeah, it's my website, sahimali.com. And we just have a couple of minutes left, but on this final point we were just talking about, do you have any recommendations to a young person or any person who might listen to this radio play and want to get more into Shakespeare um, because maybe they see themselves reflected um, as a place to start or to continue the journey. I always tell everyone that young people should read Titus Andronicus mm. because mm. it is wacky. <laughs> it has a black power speech, probably the earliest black power speech written in English. Um, it's, it's an it's important and also undertaught. So I'm always pushing pushing Titus. And Harry Lennox, who you mentioned earlier, um, gave a great performance in the movie. Uh, um, Julie Tamer's film. Yeah. Yes, it's fantastic. That was fantastic. Extraordinary. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To just if you're curious, like it's you know Shakespeare is for you. Shakespeare is for everyone, and so there's just. You don't need to you, you don't need to know more you don't need to live more you don't need to do anything more like whatever moment you're at you can find something in shakespeare that speaks to you so just just don't be afraid of engaging um don't be afraid don't be afraid of shakespeare cool uh thank you very much for sitting down and uh talking with me this is quite a pleasure i'm super looking forward to this uh do you have any final parting thoughts you want to share Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks, Alec. This was fantastic. Thanks for yeah. having us. Thank you. Oh, and so I guess we'll call it now. Um, but can we take a picture together? Do you know how to do that, Rinaldi? Yes, I took a couple actually while oh, the three of okay. you were talking. Okay. Uh, I'll do one now, the four of us, the five of us. Um, I have to say, Titus Andronicus is my favorite. It's the best. Oh. It's the best. <laughs> I, I really want there to be a radio play because, like, the sounds of like that pie being yes! made. Like... Yes. Actually, oh. you're right because people think of that play as being a very visual play. But I, Sahim, this is what you should make the the Ooh. public to do the definitive 
radio version of Titus. Oh my Ooh, God. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. And I love that play. Yeah. No, if there's one thing that this process taught me, it's just like the audio is so rich and like, you know, you, you just engage with your imagination in a way that can be even more powerful than something that's, you know, it's like reading a novel, right? Like you have an experience where you, you conjure something in a way that's like, you know, it's, it's, it's most fertile for your brain. So. And, but this yeah. is why podcasts are so popular now because all we are oversaturated with visual stimulus and yeah. people like to actually just have a moment where you're reflecting orally. So mm -hmm. I think radio mm -hmm. plays could have a huge resurgence now. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, Alex just, should do all the music, clearly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I watched some of your videos because I, oh, I, yeah? oh, I wasn't aware of your work before. I'm sorry. So I watched and I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So I took a couple screen caps. I'll email those out to everyone. Cool. Okay. Super. So that was my conversation with Ayana Thompson and Sahim Ali talking about the Richard II radio play the free Shakespeare on the Radio production, WNYC and the Public Theater. Check it out. Links are in the show notes, available. All four episodes are available right now. I should also mention that the Public Square version of this conversation is available. It's in the show notes. Check it out. Um, that's the abridged version, so it's more concise. Um, this is the unabridged, so it's a little bit more long-winded. I hope you still enjoyed it. I was a little bit insecure about it um, and almost didn't release it and then remembered something that's always good to remember and that's that it's not about me it's about us so if you are enjoying the podcast please subscribe rate review share uh, and let me know you know find me social media all the other things you can email me and I look forward to this season um since doing the Zoom format, I have a lot more opportunity to interview many more people. Scheduling is a lot less of a nightmare. So that's one of the good changes to come out of all of this. So I'm very excited for some of the people I've mentioned coming up. So stay tuned. I'll be back here on Monday. And if you have the wherewithal, please support the arts. They are they are essential. So Thank you very much for listening. Have a good one. Peace.